0: Remember that viral video that went around where a paint-and-sip-like event had the whole participation of a people in perfect unison singing each stitch of the letter of Tevin Campbell's now classic Can We Talk? In the last few years, this song has ignited a memory or two, or more, considering music historian Naima Cochran's appeal for us all to get a new, quote, feel-good R&B throwback. Because quote, come on y'all, we ain't played the song this much when it came out, end quote. But I remember listening to it this much when it came out. It was on the radio constantly, and my middle school self couldn't get enough. Tevin and I were close enough in age that the words oozed a respectable vulnerability, and the melody felt like my cloudy day walks to and from school, my treasured alone time with my small black radio and cassette player. Some songs just stick to your ribs, and the phrase feel good and word throwback describe it so perfectly for me. It must be the magic of co-writers Daryl Simmons and Babyface, who knew Tevin was the right singer for this penning. I wasn't enthralled with the kid, no heart shapes around his picture or anything. I was enthralled with his voice, however, an energy and aura that felt authentic, and to me, innocent, the safest way for me as a tween to feel good.
1: If you're gonna cover a classic song by a legendary artist, you better make it your own and don't embarrass yourself. It's a difficult task, especially when the song was certifiably brilliant when Stevie Wonder sang it in 1980. The song I'm talking about is Lately, a deeply felt heartbreak ballad about a man who suspects his woman is cheating. When Stevie sings it, you feel the vulnerability, you feel the sadness and the aching despair. In 1993, during Uptown MTV Unplugged, Jodeci courageously covered it. Not only did they do the song justice, they did what you're supposed to do with the cover, make it your own and add new dimensions to it. Lead vocalist KC and JoJo brought their southern fried gospel flavor to this cover. KC in particular, brought a far more uncontainable pain to the lyrics. The despair here feels more like grief. The sadness here is more desperate. The emotions are far more intense. The live performance element also elevates it. Church boys love an audience. For me, that's what made Jodeci so special. These so-called street tough bad boys could sing with such heartfelt vulnerability. And let's just acknowledge KC's vocals were like superpowers. You felt everything he sang. This gorgeous cover gave Jodeci their biggest pop charting hit. I will always think of this as a defining moment in Jodeci's musical legacy. It's a brilliant, assured performance and a splendid achievement for a group at the height of their career.
0: I'm writer and professor, Ashley
1: Blackwell. I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast, Robin Shanae. And this is Rhythm in Schools.
0: Breaking Down 90s R&B One Year at a Time. Episode 4, 1993, Can We Talk?
1: Let me lick you up and down till you say stop. These are the lyrics to the chorus of Freak Me by male R&B vocal group Silk, a huge R&B hit released in 1993. At the time, these lyrics, this song was considered quite shocking on mainstream radio for its frankness and complete lack of innuendo. The boldness was over the top, excessive even, but that was the point. Co-written by foundational New Jack Swing recording artist, Keith Sweat. Freak Me was a descendant of a lineage of raunchy don't-play-this-in-front-of-your-mama R&B. You can go back three years to 1990 to Belle Biv DeVoe's Do Me, which felt almost startling on the mainstream radio. And you can add in Color Me badds, I Want to Sex You Up. But honestly, the DNA of sexually suggestive R&B reaches much further back. I think of Marvin Gaye's 1982 hit, Sexual Healing. Just think about those words sitting together, sexual and healing. Marvin, often a conflicted believer, wrestled with this in his music. Sexual healing is a perfect merger of the erotic and the divine. Prince was also a master of this. Silk's Freak Me stands out because of lead singer Little G's heavy gospel vocal gymnastics. This is the kind of singing you hear in church when someone is catching the spirit. But here, he is completely lost in the passion of the song. Secular R&B has often, almost always, straddled this line. Way back when Little Richard was yowling on Tutti Frutti about a girl named Sue who knows just what to do. Even Ray Charles had the Rayletts moaning uhs and ahs on what I say. Remember when Aretha was scolding us for overstaying our welcome because Dr. Feelgood was about to take care of her pains and ills? On the song, Give It To Me Baby, Rick James came home wanting his woman to give him that sweet funky stuff. And who can forget Teddy Pendergrass shouting like a preacher when he commanded us to turn off the lights and light a candle. The lines have always been there, but Freak Me felt like it was erasing those lines and opening another door. Here there was no suggestion or imaginative metaphors and similes. And listeners loved it. It was a number one hit on Billboard and the R&B charts. And with this hit, 90s R&B will soon become More hypersexual, more lyrically explicit, for better or worse. And side note, I've always thought the lyrics Until You Say Stop stood out. For a song this erotic, they were still clear about consent.
0: Reflecting back on 1993 goes a little something like this. The news covered the NYC World Trade Center's North Tower bombing incident. Rodney King testified at the federal trial of four Los Angeles, California police officers who were accused of violating his civil rights when they beat him during an arrest. The world-mourned actor River Phoenix, who died of drug-induced heart failure outside the West Hollywood nightclub, The Viper Room. The world also lost another great talent, Brandon Lee, on the set of The Crow by an accidental shooting with a prop gun. Pivoting to less somber news, let's talk about some of the biggest movies of the year. They were Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, Sleepless in Seattle, Indecent Proposal, and Schindler's List. And some of the most popular television series were Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Race Under Fire, Coach, Frasier, Murphy Brown, Murder, She Wrote, and Thunder Alley, which good Lord, talk about a 90s list. In music, the king of R&B, Bobby Brown, was arrested in Augusta, Georgia for simulating a sex act on stage with a mixed-age audience looking on. In more savory music lookbacks, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum opened on June 7th in Cleveland, Ohio. Michael Jackson performed at the annual Super Bowl halftime show. Patti LaBelle rightfully received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Whitney Houston single, I Will Always Love You, released in 1992, spends 14 weeks at number one, setting a new record for a single song, spending 14 weeks at number one. But Dream Lover by Mariah Carey ended up being 1993's
1: top song. Okay, so first thing that came to my mind was, is that the Super Bowl performance where Michael stood for like 20 minutes and everybody was screwing their heads off? (laughs) And I don't think it was even 20 minutes. It was more like two or three But like that was a moment no one on this earth will ever be that famous. Moments like that just can't be duplicated. And, you know, on a heavier note, when I'm thinking about River Phoenix and his passing, it's it's another one of those voids where we wonder what kind of career he would have had. He was super talented and he was such a presence on screen, that it factor that folks are always talking about. He had it for sure going back to films, happy to see some of my favorite films released this year. Jurassic Park, The Fugitive, and Sleepless in Seattle are still films I return to over and over. Just classic cinema through and through. What did we tell y'all last episode? If you lived it, you know that Whitney Houston's song, I Will Always Love You, was inescapable for like two whole years. You can divide her career in two phases, before the Bodyguard soundtrack and after.
0: I didn't see film starring River Phoenix until more recently. So I had a student write this really thoughtful, amazing paper on his film, Running on Empty, from the 80s. And that's this really great drama about his character's aspirations to be a musician, but his parents were on the run from the government, making his dreams kind of a challenge. So it's just seeing him in that film, I can mm-hmm. understand exactly what your sentiments are. I remember the Jurassic Park Sega Genesis game more than the movie. (laughs) So even though we had the home video bootleg copy of it that got more than one viewing and it was actually an in-class screening at school once, I never really watched the film until a few years ago. I'm pretty sure it's because dinosaurs have kind of always freaked me out. That's one reason why I kept my distance in 1993. The Franklin Institute here in Philly, there we had an exhibit where I think they had like real life looking like holograms of dinosaurs. And when I was a kid, I lost my mind. I was like, get me out of here. I started crying. I don't like dinosaurs. <laughs> wow. So Yeah, I don't know what that is, but that's my sentiment. But I'm glad I saw Jurassic Park just as an example. I really did enjoy it. Yay! (laughs) But my movie of this year was Mrs. Doubtfire. I wore that legitimate VHS copy out. It was (laughs) the whimsical spirit that Robin Williams brought to his role and the comedic Mm -hmm. elements that even as a kiddo, I really dug. But even more so, in retrospect, it was the more sentimental moments dealing with parental conflict, divorce, the new people in your parents' life, honestly, were all triggers for me to have a deep appreciation for what Williams brought to his character and the arc his character has, especially in the last scene of the film. But I think that's for my therapist and not this podcast. <laughs> also, one other thing I wanted to talk about was, man, oh man, do I remember I will always love you. It They ran that, that song into the earth's core. So it's been nice having many years removed from it, where now I listen to it and enjoy it even more than I did back then i really want to shout out rob harvilla the host of 60 songs that Explained the 90s because his episode on this song with garrett kennedy was so thoughtful and lovely to listen to
1: oh yes it was one of my favorite podcast episodes ever of, of any subject honestly The top 20 R&B singles of 1993, according to Playback FM. That's The Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson. Uh, this song feels like a cultural reset, and I'll be delving into that later on in the episode. Freak Me by Silk, Hero by Mariah Carey, Week by SWV, Dream Lover by Mariah Carey. Such a perfect blend of R&B and pop, that song is. Just Kicking It by Escape. I love this song and Ashley will be breaking down the debut album, Nothing But a G-Thang by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Okay y'all, I did some research on why hip-hop tracks keep appearing on the R&B charts and it's very complicated with Billboard and Black radio. See, Black radio didn't really play hip-hop in the 80s and very early 90s. And apparently Billboard just didn't fully acknowledge hip-hop as its own genre until like 1999. Whoop, there it is by Tag Team. Knock into Boots by H-Town. Shout out to H-Town and this song. I loved it. My parents hated how much I loved it. <laughs> Lead singer Dino passed away years ago, but I think he had such a unique and beautiful voice. Gangster Lean by DRS. I'm So Into You by SWV. Y'all, songs had longevity. Please check out our 1992 episode where Ashley dives deep into our collective and complete adoration for SWV. Lately by Jodeci. I will always think of and love the Martin episode <laughs> where he tried to be a member of the group to be on the Barnell Hill Show. Don't Walk Away by Jade. Please check out our previous episode where I discussed my love for this song. Another Sad Love song by Tony Braxton, Hip Hop Parade by Naughty by Nature, Hey Mr. DJ by Janet, I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston, Next to I'm Every Woman, this is probably my favorite song on the Bodyguard soundtrack. And rounding out the top 20 Can We Talk by Tevin Campbell.
0: When you are introducing Martin. You must show them the Varnell Hill episode. Yes! Top five. I do want to thank you for the insight on why in the world there are legit rap songs (laughs) on this list. So I have faves from this year that will be mentioned later in this episode and some that have been extrapolated on in previous episodes. So I want to nod my head in affirmation to the live version of Lately by Jodeci. And I just, because I want to reemphasize that as a grony. I have a newfound appreciation for it. Like I listened to it quite a few times before recording this episode. I was like, yeah, I like this a lot.
1: Oh my God. I love hearing about your newfound appreciation for Jodeci and Lately. Makes my heart sing. Just wanted to make a quick mention of Uptown MTV Unplugged since Jodeci's Lately appears on this list. We won't be able to get into it again during this episode. So I just wanted listeners to know that Uptown, MTV Unplugged, and the Uptown label were a big deal for R&B music in the early 90s. It's a big part of this cultural shift we keep talking about with live performances from Mary J. Blige, Jodeci, Christopher Williams, and Heavy D. Please check out the album and also watch performances on YouTube. Andre Harrell was an innovator, and we will always lift up his name.
0: Yes, I remember from mixed media historical documents that Andre Harrell had a vision for hip-hop culture to permeate all aspects of media and fashion. And I feel like he really did it very successfully.
1: Oh, so true. Yes, a legend, truly. So let's always remember him and Uptown the label, Uptown the Attitude, for real. The 36th Annual Grammy Awards was held on March 1st, 1994, to honor music from 1993. The nominees for Best Rhythm and Blues Song from 1993 are Can We Talk by Tevin Campbell, That's The Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson, Little Miracles Happen Every Day by Luther Vandross, Heaven Knows by Luther Vandross, and Anniversary by Tony, Tony, Tony. And the winner... That's The Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson. (laughs) I think this is a fair win.
0: This album was huge. The marketing of it alone massively put the entire project on everyone's radar. It's one of the few albums I can listen to all the way through, but it also seems designed for that kind of experience because the music all seems to blend and transition seamlessly.
1: Oh, so true. I am, I am really happy about this Janet When, But you know what? Seeing Luther here is so interesting. You know, R&B was in such a transition during this time, and it felt way more youth oriented than ever with New Jack Swing and the emergence of Hip Hop Soul. And Luther was still getting nominated and recognized in a time where traditional R&B artists like him were kind of no longer at the center.
0: Oh my goodness, how youth blinds you to that fact when you're living in it. Listening to my mom's favorite radio station, which was WDAS here, it seemed like older folks' music because they weren't the artists that were heavily front and center during this period. They were more so heavily sampled than
1: anything else. That's a really incredible observation, specifically thinking about Luther Vandross being as huge as he was in the 80s, having a lot of hits during that time, but also as he kind of moved into the 90s, he was still. On the charts with Power of Love, as we spoke about in a previous episode. And now seeing acts like Luther, like Anita, possibly throw in Sade or Jeffrey Osborne, they're kind of being pushed out of that center as a new wave of artists are emerging.
0: Doing the impossible,
1: this is where we choose some of our five favorite tracks from the year. The first track I'm choosing is Cry No More by 2D Extreme. You know I had to choose this song. On our website, it's my pick for one of my favorite 90s songs by One Hit Wonder. I remember purchasing the single at Sam Goody and playing it over and over again. I think it's because I love the melody and the lyrics and the vocals are so rich and soulful. Even though this was their one hit, It wasn't a big song, more like a minor hit. I don't know how many folks remember it, which is another reason I selected it. Fun fact, Johnny Gill's brother Randy Gill was a member of this group. Would have loved to hear more from them. But there was just so much competition. To the extreme, wherever you are, I have not forgotten about y'all. My second pick, Pink Cashmere by Prince. As a music enthusiast, one of the things that fascinates me Is an artist having a career that spans decades. I really don't think people are aware of how difficult a task that is. No matter how big the artist, how do artists adapt or reject the changing times? And what will the music be like? Can they find some balance where they evolve and also stay true to their sound? And will listeners remain faithful? That's why I brought up this Prince song. I always forget this song came out in 1993 because it feels like 80s Prince. And that's because it was recorded in 1988. But I think releasing it in 1993 on his compilation album was the right move. It's classic Prince. It's one of those mid-tempo bedroom burners he's known for. And in our 1991 episode, Ashley, you very eloquently discussed how Prince transitioned into a new decade, where he was in some ways uncompromising in sound and yet also trying to find new ways to add hip-hop to his musical palette, which at times didn't always work. But Prince returns to form with Pink Cashmere. I mean, this might be a top 10 Prince song for me. Pink Cashmere, just that title alone. I mean, is there a book somewhere just talking about the (laughs) brilliance of his song titles? (laughs) Prince is just such an imaginative songwriter on top of everything else. And the music on this track has so many layers. Also got to mention, his crazy, unbelievable falsetto gets a workout here. And those ad-libs, I love every minute of it.
0: Fantastic choice. And you're right. Pink Cashmere does feel like 80s Prince, like the seaside of Under the Cherry Moon, perhaps. I love how he lets the instrumental ride to
1: conclude the song as well. It's one of my favorite parts of it. It's so good. (laughs) All right, for my next pick... I chose ABC 1, 2, 3 by Levert. When I think about lineage and musical connective tissue between artists, I think a lot about Levert. For those that don't know, two of the members of Levert, Gerald and Sean, are the sons of legendary soul singer Eddie Levert, who is a member of the OJs. The OJs are one of the greatest male R&B groups of all time and a part of the magic of the Philly Soul Sound. Gerald Sean, and childhood friend Mark made big hits in the 80s, such as Casanova and Pop 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 Goes My Mind. They were truly in the tradition of the OJs by making deeply soulful R&B music, Gerald Levert being the lead with an earth-shaking voice akin to his father's. In 1990, they scored a hit with a quiet storm Gym called Baby I'm Ready, but it was in 1993 You could see them trying to adapt to this rise of hip hop on their album for real though. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But on that album, there is a really incredible ballad called ABC 123, where they hearken back to traditional R&B reminiscent of the OJs. This song has such a classic feel to it. And Gerald, like his dad, known for vocal theatrics, does a really amazing impression of his father, Eddie, towards the end of the song. This song, to me, has always felt like a tribute to the OJs. It's one of my favorite songs by LaVert. And sadly, Gerald and Sean have both passed on. We lost something truly special when we lost them. I read in a magazine, I can't remember which one, but the writer said when Gerald LaVert passed away, he was considered one of the last truly great male soul singers. When you hear this song, you know we lost something special. For my next pick... Hey, Mr. DJ by Janet. Oh, how I love them. They deserve so much more. We need to keep them in the conversation when we discuss 90s female vocal groups or hear a duo, because these ladies could sing. This was such an inescapable party jam. Produced by Naughty by Nature, the song samples another inescapable post-disco jam called Looking Up to You by Michael Wyckoff. Y'all, at the next cookout or family reunion, Play these tracks back to back. It never fails. My best friend Janira and I had a couple of dance routines to this song too, as I remember and reflect back. House parties and school dances played this song a lot because it was a guarantee to get folks dancing. There are no wallflowers when this song comes on. What's amazing is that this could have been a one-hit wonder situation for them. The song was just so big, but they followed it up with more hits, perhaps none bigger than this but they did establish themselves in that wave of 90s R&B female vocal groups.
0: Hey, Mr. GJ, uh, so infectious. And also, another song karaoke to perfection by Ashley Banks on an episode
1: of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh my God, I totally forgot about that episode, and now I can see it (laughs) in my head. Yes, she really killed that. And finally, Let Me Be The One by Intro. If you're still confused about what hip-hop soul sounds like, let Me Be The One is hip-hop soul in its purest form. I had like four songs by intro I was trying to choose from, but I went with this one. I love the harmonies. Lead singer-songwriter Kenny Green's vocals were so rich and so beautiful. I just love his voice so much. Intro are not one-hit wonders. They did have hits, but we just don't discuss them the way we should. Their sound is hip-hop soul at its essence down to the style, the attitude, and the hip hop coded tracks. You see the influence of Jodeci, but also they really kind of got their own thing going as well. Production-wise, they were distinct. Kenny Green was the creative force behind intro and also wrote songs for Mary J. Blige, such as Reminisce and Love No Limit. His work with Mary got him a Songwriter of the Year Award from the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. He also went on to work with folks like Will Smith, 98 Degrees, and Cameron. Sadly, we lost Kenny Green way too soon to complications from AIDS in 2001. Gone, but definitely never forgotten. Let Me Be the One is just the tip of the iceberg to the greatness of intro and the legacy of Kenny Green.
0: My first choice for a 1993 single is Let Us Know by Boys to Men and Brian McKnight, which I never knew until this podcast. <laughs> also, wait a minute. Was this song released on December 6, 1993, my 11th birthday? Well, okay, at least it was in the UK. Maybe not in the US. I didn't think anything could match This Christmas by Donny Hathaway for me, but Let It Snow comes very close. When I hear the opening, it's another Christmas holiday, I go right back to being 11 and the anticipation of time off from school and time with family, including the aroma of my mother's tireless cooking from the kitchen and the lights glistening off the tree. I made sure it was not heavy rotation every December since. But after my mom died in 2018, it was really hard to get back into the spirit, and I don't think i listened to Let Us Know again until 2021, when things started to mend a little around the holidays, thanks to some major life shifts. I'm just grateful I can now listen to it and feel a little bit better about things again. And man, does this song feel like 1993.
1: Happy listeners, just know Ashley has picked a boys to men song <laughs> for her deep dive. I know I am so glad you picked this song. You are so right about it. Being very close to Donny Hathaway's This Christmas, as far as timelessness goes, it really is a modern classic. And like Donny's tune, I can't even imagine Christmas without it. Next up, Shanice, It's For You. So I originally knew
0: of this song through its stamp on the Meteor Man soundtrack. I love how this song was described as a smooth step for Shanice into a mature sound with a romantic bop that has an undeniable dance tempo, but a cool out sensibility due to the intimate lyrical affirmations. And once more, Shanice's voice is boisterous. It's powerful and so dynamic. It shakes and rattles my core, which is why I have so much reverence for her as a musician. Yes.
1: Yes. This is one of those perfect 90s R&B songs. I think folks were trying to write Shanice off as a one-hit wonder with I Love Your Smile, but she reminded them time and again she had so much more to offer. Yes, this is such a great song. I'm so glad you picked it.
0: Absolutely. My next choice is DRS and their song Lean." So this was the pre-Bone Thugs' crossroads that may be a bit lost in the weeds of R&B history. I can see why this was a top 20 single because it was on the radio all the time. Once, MC Hammer had a talent company called Roll With It Entertainment that released Gangsta Lean as the debut single of Sacramento's own DRS, short for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, a sincere meditation on the grief of losing friends and the faith that they'll see each other once again. Apparently, the video is responsible for introducing the Libation Act, pouring liquid on the ground for the deceased, and airbrushed R.I.P. shirts to wider audiences. All of this and the singing these brothers do truly put a bow on this gem. DRS added dimensions to the West Coast gangster image, presenting depth of emotion that very clearly wasn't often a highlight associated
1: with the region and the music during this period. And, you know, on paper, it shouldn't have worked, but it does. Mm-hmm. Five West Coast gangsters, not rapping, but singing. You're so right about them kind of expanding that West Coast gangster image. Can't think of the song without thinking of the video either, which reminded folks that real people were and are being affected by the senseless violence.
0: And also the universal theme of grief mm-hmm. and all that's put into the song makes it absolutely timeless, even though it sounds so 90s. So 90s. <laughs> My next choice is by Lenny Kravitz, and it's his song, Heaven Help. Adding to Robin's previous mention of Kravitz's pocket in the canon of rhythm and blues as a known entity under the rock umbrella, he has always managed to create music that blur the narrow restraints and forced on Black artists whose influences are boundaryless. Of course, Kravitz is super representative of the 90s male-desiring Black girls rock star fantasy. I mean, have you seen this, man? <laughs> that aside, with Heaven Help, he again taps into his 70 soul sensibilities. He's been compared to artists like Curtis Mayfield and the Isley Brothers. Crooning Heaven Help, that special someone who walks through his door, is just more of that rich honesty that I
1: admire. I'm just going to say it. Lenny Kravitz might be one of the most misunderstood artists of all time. When the mainstream can't put you in a box, they often try to minimize you or just dismiss you altogether. Although his music leans heavier towards rock, he's often straddling the lines of R&B and soul, and he's always worn his influences on his sleeve. Prince, Hendrix, Lennon, Curtis Mayfield. Heaven Help is a gem and speaks directly to his soul music influence. I feel Curtis in this also really feels like Harvest for the World era Isley Brothers, as you mentioned. And Lenny is just such a remarkable artist, and this song just reminds me of how versatile he is.
0: I think I've been drawn to Lenny since I was a teenager because he's so versatile. He was a reminder for me that it was okay to be on the surface different and embrace alt style and blend steeds and the soulful foundation that he has. All of this music is just so interconnected anyway. Um, can you say that louder for the folks in the cheap seats? <laughs> <laughs> My last choice here is UNV's Something's Going On. And who knew this quartet was signed to Madonna's Maverick Records? I'm thinking it must be the Michigan connection and of course the raw talent. UNV, or Universal Nubian Voices, originally moved independently and gained traction, garnering the attention of a record label that allowed Something's Going On to reach more people and chart on pop and R&B lists. This song, A Relationship Conflict Ride with the in-between chatter, is just this palpable jam that I enjoy listening to.
1: I forgot about the Madonna connection, but yes, now it's all coming back to me. I saw the video at my cousin April's house before I even heard the song on the radio. I love the vocals, love the harmonies, and just the drama of the song. Once again, we're really seeing how Boys to Men and Jodeci have just opened this door and thousands of male r&b groups just flooded in so easy to be overlooked during this period but this song really really memorable so random theory drew hill is the direct
0: descendant of unv wow this song feels like the brother of we're not making love no more and the spouse of in my bed (laughs)
1: You know, that, that's a really brilliant observation. I, ca- I can't wait to get to Drew Hill in these later episodes because, yeah, oh, that was, that's a really dope observation.
0: We'll try not to jump in our seats while we're talking about them. <laughs> Tell me.
1: And now for our legacy segment. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, we just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s. Trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. Toni Raxton clearing her own path with her self-titled debut album. In the early nineties, some of the most dominant musical forces on the radio were Whitney, Janet, and Mariah. These three female superstars were huge at the time. Their reign over pop and R&B radio was massive. And you can throw in the early career of Mary J. Blige, who was changing the R&B game altogether how could another female recording artist break through? And not just break through, but clear her own path to superstardom. You'd have to ask Toni Braxton, because after the Boomerang soundtrack, where she appears with her first hit, Love Should Have Brought You Home, her self-titled debut album allowed her to forge her way into pop superstardom and stand out from the pack. That's what's so fascinating to me about Toni Braxton's early success. She wasn't the next Whitney. She wasn't a Janet Xerox copy. She didn't imitate Mariah or Mary. She was her own very distinct artist. Her voice was different. It felt more akin to Anita Baker and Phyllis Hyman. The Los Angeles Times even compared her lower register to Tracy Chapman. Her music was sultry, sophisticated and very mature, yet so accessible. My parents liked her as much as I did. She was embraced by the MTV BET generation. The new Jack swing sound was still lingering just as hip hop soul was emerging in a big way. Rap was continuing its rise on the pop charts. And yet we were all loving what Toni Braxton had to offer. Like and Lewis with Janet, Quincy with Michael, Burt Bacharach, and Dionne Warwick, Babyface's collaborations with Tony Braxton are pure magic and the stuff of legend. And this is a really strong debut album. We have the mid-tempo, melancholy ballad, another sad love song opening the album, and it's a masterful display of her vocal talent and the peerless production of LA, Babyface, and Daryl Simmons. A major standout on this album to me is the bluesy, jazz-infused Seven Whole Days. Songs like How Many Ways and You Mean the World to Me gave her edge in the pop arena. But y'all, has there ever been a song like Breathe Again? When we talk about lightning in a bottle, we need to add Breathe Again to the conversation. This was her highest charting song on the album. And no wonder, there's such restraint and vulnerability on this ballad, you kind of just feel it in your soul. There are a couple of up-tempo tracks here that round out the album and also a deep cut that I adore called Love Affair. The album went number one and charted three top 10 singles on Billboard and selling to date over 10 million copies. And I just want to reemphasize how difficult it is to not sound like any artist who is dominating the charts at this time. So when you listen to this album, it is so clear Tony is in her own lane.
0: My childhood friend Chris and I absolutely loved Tony Braxton. We would casually just sing her hooks when we were feeling good, and all the time I spent listening to the radio solo, whenever a Tony Braxton song came on, I never changed the dial. I suppose as such a fervent Anita Baker fan, that Tony's vocal lane did and does still appeal to me very much. To me, Tony is like the LaFace brand personified and perfected.
1: Perfectly stated, I totally agree with that too. Like, I, when you think of LaFace, I immediately think of Tony Braxton. Alright y'all, Janet Jackson's That's The Way Love Goes. You know, when I was thinking about this segment, I struggled with how to approach it. Do I analyze the massively successful Janet album? The historic record label deal with Virgin Records? the newly defined sex symbol image heightened by the jaw-dropping Rolling Stone cover where a topless Janet had her breast cupped by her hubby, Renee Elizondo, or how about the poetic justice starring role? There's just too much to cover because Janet basically owned 1993. But honestly, y'all, I kept coming back to the single That's the Way Love Goes because that single pretty much encapsulates everything I want to say about Janet's popularity, her musicianship, her shifting image, and why she is one of my faves. Like a moth to a flame, burned by the fire. I wish I could articulate the first time I heard this song and those words on the radio. I don't think any of us were prepared for this slinky, hypnotic triumph called That's the Way Love Goes. And you gotta understand, the Janet who became a massive pop star did so by making New Jack Swing pop masterpieces like Control, where she declared her assertive grown woman independence, and Rhythm Nation, a perfect blend of pop R&B protest album, hard-hitting New jack swing jams, and Quiet Storm slow burners. Those albums always felt right on time, just tapped into the moment. And by being so present, they felt forward thinking. They were impacting entire generations and becoming blueprints for future pop princesses. And I can't think of one pop artist of the past 30 years who doesn't owe something to Janet Jackson. But as I mentioned, In the bridge segment, times were a changing and the climate became more sensual and sexual on the radio. Many artists were leaning into a far more risque approach to their music. With That's The Way Love Goes, Janet and her collaborators, producer Supernova's Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who helped usher her into superstardom with control, were here now pushing R&B into new dimensions, especially with this single. I've always felt this song was, dare I say it, proto-Neo-Soul. It's not dance pop. It's not New Jack Swing. It's not even hip-hop soul. This was the alternative to the R&B on the radio at the time, believe it or not. The sheer funkiness, the multi-layering of the groove, the brilliant use of a James Brown sample felt like it was opening another sonic door. And the song is sexy. Janet has always been giving us sensual ballads like Come Back to Me, but here it feels far more seductive and erotic. Lyrically even, going deeper and feeling so good I'm going to cry. This song really summarizes the experience of the Janet album, where its primary theme is sexual liberation. This is also where she starts to become most accessible as a pop artist. In the video, we see a laid back, playful Janet in a way we hadn't seen before. It was a stark contrast to previous music videos where her elaborate choreography held the spotlight. There's a lot of beautiful people in this video, many of them background dancers. And we also get a glimpse of the then in-living color fly girl, Jennifer Lopez, before her own superstardom. It's one of my favorite Janet songs and I'm not alone. That's the way love goes, was embraced by music listeners and critics alike. It was a number one hit. None of Janet's previous material sounds like this. It's such a courageous move to completely shift your sound and lead with it as a first single. To me, this song best represents this era of Janet as a megastar and as an artist in complete control and also very much ahead of the game. So I
0: never thought of That's the Way Love Goes as proto-Neo Soul because... Janet seemed so mainstreamed, like almost anything she did was going to go through the tunnel of pop because, you know, quote, everyone knew who she Mm -hmm. was. So I never made that connection. I still own that Janet CD that I bought nearly 20 years ago and remember being fully aware that I was way too young for (laughs) much of the material. But still the playfulness, the sexy, the socially aware, the empowered components of Janet was quite the awakening. I wanted Janet's public confidence. It was so bold and awe-inspiring. And yes, me and my friend Chris gushed over this era Janet too. I remember him trying to reenact the dance sequences from the If video in his living room and me cracking up at the madness of it.
1: Child, I think I had an asthma attack trying to do the If choreography. (laughs) (laughs) So let's also
0: look back at Escape's first album now that it's 30 years old. The groundswell of women R&B singing groups in the 90s was so massively conspicuous. At times, it could have seemed like you were witnessing a blur of homogeneity. The tomboy hip-hop style to sexy femme, different producers but same vibe, each with a distinct vocal point of view that echoes the soul of the past. So how do you stand out? Escape... The name itself was intentional to dig even more into the ideals of the time, asserting that girl groups didn't have to be one-dimensionally sexy to sell records. Quote, to church and back, end quote. Member Tamika Tiny Cottle once lamented about Escape's delivery. Because these ladies really leaned into their bluesy gospel roots, smothering it on the r and sound of the time. Southern Fried and Fly, Candy Burris, Miss Cottle, Latasha, and Tamika Scott met as teenagers in College Park, Georgia, with their eye on the Healthy Music Resume Prize. On the other side of the 90s Atlanta R&B music scene was a 20-year-old Jermaine Dupree, who had been a beatmaker since he was a teenager. Impressed by Escape's vocal gifts, he signed them to his So So Deaf imprint. Dupree, along with Manuel Seal, worked with the girls to produce and record, in just two weeks, mind you, the now 30-years-old and full-grown debut album Hummin' Comin' Atcha. Just kicking its bass-heavy aura with Dupree's unforgettable inserts that was co-opted by my childhood friend Tiana when we played kickball in the back of the driveway for some reason. And Candy's low octave, accentuated by Latasha's gospel-esque exclamation points, sent that join to number one. It's a topper I never got tired of hearing on the radio. And the staple singer's Let's Do It Again sample on the remix? Perfection. Understanding was more of a shared effort amongst each of them as strong singers and another number one joint. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the B-sides as well. As Escaped worked hard to stand out from the girl group stew, I feel some of their other songs on Hummin deserve a bit of the spotlight. About the times when we were still indulging cassettes and it wasn't so easy to just skip to the next track, which was my initial experience with this album. The group says Pumpin' is their least favorite song, but it's good for a workout. If anything, it's probably the most pop-sounding song on Hummin', which may have simmered the edge they were proud of wearing. If you want me, let me know. Those three words were the title of their I'm making the first move track. It's bold, it's confident, and they're singing their butts off on it. The up-tempo with you, an expression of pure affection, was produced by organized noise. I enjoy the song's distribution, again, of each woman making their vocal mark on the track. Which makes me think about something further. The biggest way in which Escape stands out that I'm uncertain is emphasized enough is the fact that each shared the belting labor on many of the songs on Hummin' somewhat evenly. And that is what makes the spirit of 90s girl groups and the specialness of Hummin' so important. Dupree and company, along with Escape, made certain that each member laid it on thick as an equitable project. For a moment, there were no lead singers. This was a unified front on
1: all dimensions. Yes. You know, as I went back and listened to the album all the way through, I reflected just on how all the members got a chance to shine vocally. They definitely cleared their own path during the 90s girl group wave, which was increasingly hard to do so. Also, I just wanted to mention tonight as another album cut that I think is really beautiful and allows us to experience how vocally dynamic they all are. Oh my gosh,
0: yes. And pair that with Is My Living in Vain, and it's the best of what they have to offer straight out of the
1: gate. You ain't never lied.
0: (laughs) Now, if we really want to talk uncompromising, forward, revolutionary, with an apologize for what demeanor, in 1993... You didn't have to look any further than Michelle and Deggie Cello. She is one of those breathing testaments that personify the blues. From her early years into the 90s, she wore her melancholy into her music. Its intentions were therapeutic, a quest to mend the anger that racism aroused. From her exposure to the art of poetry and spoken word, the funk of Sly Stone, the improvisation of Miles Davis, and the instrumental arrangements of Prince, she claimed neither box nor bracket, to fall into. Her stage name last, meaning freedom in Swahili. She affirmed with her critically acclaimed debut album, Plantation Lullabies, to commit to the translation's process. Confrontation, rumination, healing, free. And man does this piece confront. Recorded under Madonna's Maverick records, so charged with racial commentary that even the executives on this label were uncomfortable with his observation shooting up and getting high goes macro and condemns the strategic chain of designs that resulted in drug infestations in low-income Black communities. She says, birth control and abortion, the capitalistic hand around my throat, shooting up dope to cope in this dehumanizing society. And revolution against this racist institution, the white man shall forever sleep with one eye open, and another stick in one's crawl, the track Soul on Ice, where she acts." Brother, 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 are you suffering from a social infection misdirection? Excuse me, does your white woman go better with your Brooks Brothers suit? Folks, Michelle is not interested in making white or Black folks comfortable. Rumination envelopes I'm digging you like an old soul record. She talks about remember back in the day when everyone was Black and conscious and down for the struggle, love brought us together, sitting back and talking, cultivating a positive vibe, blue lights in the basement, freedom was at hand and you could just taste it. It was so cool. Digging on me, digging on you. And healing comes in to unite us with safe spaces like two lonely hearts on the subway. Black, Black, yes, it's hard and that's a fact, but I can rise above when we have love. Following this, her declarations on dreadlock kisses the wounds that Black men carry, Plantation Lullabies, Whispers as an Island were invited to meditate on. Black struggle and love, along with the plush live brass bass and percussion, makes this work of art a foremother of Neo Soul, a foundation for how to be free.
1: I hadn't listened to this album all the way through in several years, maybe since it debuted. And, you know, my mind was really blown on how forward thinking it is. It's hard to believe this is an album from 1993. And also the Prince influence? I feel the experimental sensibilities of Prince all up and through this album. Like Michelle is doing a lot of things really well. The rapping, the singing, the imaginative concepts, the social consciousness, all here on full display. It's really quite staggering.
0: Like the Brownstone single, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, or just some of the insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So, Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine?
1: I can't remember where I saw it or read it, but I done heard that Babyface originally wrote another sad love song for Chili of TLC. You know, I'm always fascinated by how a song ends up with an artist to me that song is made for tony the braxton and i can't remember reading how she eventually ended up with it but it was the right fit hands down it was the only fit (laughs) (laughs) so i done heard
0: that there was a can we talk war over who would sing it so you had la reed wanted Usher to sing the track while Babyface fought for Tevin Campbell and won with some residual chagrin apparently. Now there are a lot of people claiming that no one could do it like Tevin and on first thought I'm like well Usher could have pulled this off. Meaning I can see one person first thinks yeah let's give it to Usher but that raw vulnerability I talked about earlier I feel like Tevin embodied that more during this period. So people are likely responding to that energy that Tevin was exuding. He wasn't like the high school jock, I am the coolness that Usher was marketed to us as. So when I think back, I'm thinking to myself, do we really think, or do I really think that Usher would be too shy to talk to a girl? Would that come across? I don't know. But I know that's not allowing for Usher to be multidimensional, even during his teenage years. But if we're going on pure instinct and immediately surface reaction for a literal second, that's my knee-jerk response.
1: Oh, I, I totally agree with that. Usher would have had a really amazing version of Can We Talk? But I definitely think it ended up with the right person. I think you're right about Tevin's this vulnerability this vibe that he had, kind of a shy guy, the boy next door, you know, he really sold that well. And I think that his vulnerability is why the song works so well. You really truly believe it.
0: Yes, right on. So this was our look back on 1993. Please visit RhythmAndSchooledPodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling and get to know us. We fly! Our email is the411 at podcast.com. if you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s. We'll be sure to read and share on the show in the future. Also, follow the podcast on Instagram at
1: Rhythm underscore and underscore Schooled. And be sure to listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio now. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode Find them exclusively on Spotify.
0: Until next time. Peace. Bye.